My name is Thaer Hijazi. I was born in 1986. I'm from Douma, a city in eastern Ghouta, a region next to Damascus. August is a beautiful month in Ghouta. The nice weather allows for staying up late at night because the breeze is so amazing. And so, we, the youth working in the Syrian Revolution Coordination Committee, the activists and the documenters, we used to gather at night and have conversations. After a night like this, I eventually went to bed. Then, I was woken up by a doctor. He was standing in the street and screaming so loudly that everyone in the building woke up. He shouted, Thaer, come down. You must see what's going on. Bring your camera with you. I got up quickly, put my clothes on, grabbed my camera and went downstairs. It was around one o'clock in the morning. I noticed that there were children, women and people of different ages on the ground. People were screaming. And that's when I thought to myself, is it possible that Eastern Ruta was targeted for real? In the early hours of the 21st of August 2013, Eastern Ghouta, an area on the outskirts of Damascus, was targeted by the Syrian regime. It was the single deadliest day of the war in Syria. Around 1,400 people, mostly civilians, were killed within a matter of hours. Eastern Ghouta and the city of Duma, which had been controlled by opposition forces since the end of 2012, were not only shelled that day, they were attacked with chemical weapons, specifically with the deadly nerve agent sarin. The smell of chlorine gas is like the bleach solution that we use for cleaning, only much stronger. The smell of sarin gas is totally different. Its smell cannot be described, but I know what it does to the body. You feel like you are suffocating. Foam comes out of your mouth. You are short of breath. The pupils of your eyes reduce to the size of a pin. You convulse, faint, and lose all sense of perception. This is The Syria Trials, Episode 4, Crossing the Red Line. The attack on Ahuta was not the first time that the Syrian regime had used chemical weapons against its own people. The first documented chemical attack was in the Idlib governorate in the north of Syria in October 2012. After that, And throughout 2013, attacks using chemical weapons intensified. In May, Adra, Harasta and Al-Bahariya were bombarded. These are all neighboring towns to Duma, in the Al-Huta region just outside of Damascus. After the regime started using chemical weapons, the fear grew in our hearts. It was impossible to provide a region like Al-Ghuta, where more than 500,000 people lived, 
with gas masks. So the doctors gathered and decided to form what we called medical points. We called them that because they were established in basements and huge warehouses with no proper hospital equipment. The fear and anticipation increased until the 21st of August, when the great catastrophe occurred. Just two years before the horrific events of the 21st of August 2013, Thayer was studying law. It was 2011, and the Arab Spring protests were spreading across North Africa and the Middle East. The youth who believed in the revolution and the need for change participated in the first demonstration in Douma on the 25th of March 2011. On the 1st of April, 13 martyrs fell in Al Jala Street, in the center of Douma. The security forces tried to disperse the crowds by clubbing them and throwing tear gas at them. But when they saw that people continued demonstrating and kept on cheering and saying, the Syrian people are united, they sent people wearing civilian clothes, who were part of the state security, I think, to disperse the demonstrators using guns. After the 1st of April, we founded the Syrian Revolution Coordination Committee of Douma City. It consisted of youth who wanted to report what was happening in their cities or villages to the international media. We used Facebook and Skype to organize demonstrations. During the demonstrations, Thayer would ask after people who had been arrested or detained. He, along with activists and lawyers, had created a legal questionnaire, which they used to document information about the arrests. Thousands of miles away in Manchester, a city in the north of England, another young law student was being swept along with the wave of protests. Of half Syrian, half Egyptian origin, Ibrahim Olabi wanted to help his country and found himself traveling to Syria for the first time in 2012. So the first trips that I did to Syria were kind of very emotionally driven. I was 19, full of adrenaline, didn't tell my parents. I knew that I am not a lawyer or a specialist lawyer, but I knew I can speak the language, I can research, I can be a conveyor of legal information, of human rights information. There was a clear need and hunger amongst Syrian lawyers, amongst the different armed groups, amongst the NGO workers, to get that international legal knowledge. As the crimes committed by the regime grew in scale and changed in nature, the protesters and activists were looking for ways to hold the regime accountable. People knew that these things were crimes, but they didn't know how the international system is supposed to deal with them and what sort of international framework exists. So I was trying to play the bridge between the activists that are carrying the cause, carrying the blood and tears across, and the international lawyers who have the knowledge but do not necessarily have the Syrian context. In Aleppo in 2013, I did a lot of the kind of international humanitarian law training to the armed groups near the front lines. You know, it's not your kind of conventional workshop attendees with their AK-47s. A lot of them were masked, didn't want to show their faces. A huge amount of skepticism, leaning on their guns, watching, you know, listening to what I've got to say. Is this guy, you know, talking nonsense or is there something? And I guess a big part of my ability to convince when it came to these principles is that I was there with them. 
Right. So if I didn't care, I didn't think it was important, there's no insurance that was covering me doing that. You know, it's a risk. In March 2013, Razan Zaytuna came to Duma. Razan Zaytuna is a human rights lawyer, friend and colleague of Mazin Darwish and affiliated with his organization, the Syrian Center for Media and Freedom of Expression, or SCM. Because of her work, Razan was wanted by the regime and had gone into hiding. And when some of her colleagues, including Mazin, were arrested, Razan fled Damascus for Duma which was then outside of regime control. She hoped that she'd be able to work more freely outside of the Syrian capital. She wanted to establish an office of the VDC, the Violation Documentation Center. And she contacted me and asked me to be a member of the team. Razan trained us in international law and documentation methods. I used to accompany her on the tours she made inside Al Ghuta to document the bombardment of civilian properties and civil infrastructure. We used to document these incidents by conducting field visits to the area and gathering eyewitness testimonies. But I also handled other tasks, because I was raised in Duma, which enabled me to reach out to people and to help connect Razan with them. Razan and Thayer's evidence gathering and the work of other members of the VDC would prove an integral foundation to later case building. Steve Costas, lawyer at the Open Society Justice Initiative, has been working on some of these cases. So we have worked with a few Syrian organizations, the Syrian Center for Media and Freedom of Expression, Syrian Archive, and among the criteria that they have for selecting a case to work on is, does it point to a systematic crime committed with senior leadership involvement? And certainly the torture program, if you call it that, involved the highest level officials, as we all know now. The use of chemical weapons was directed from the highest levels. Attacks on hospitals involved senior decision-making. And so for them and for us, ultimately to have sort of justice and accountability for Syrian victims and for Syrian society requires the accountability for the architects or the people who are designing these strategies. And maybe we can go into one of the efforts to get closer to that goal. And maybe you can sort of take us along on a trip trying to imagine how it actually works building such a difficult and complex case like the chemical weapons attacks. How do you even start doing that? Yeah, so as you know, there are basically two types of chemical attacks perpetrated by the Syrian government. One is using chlorine and the other is using sarin, which is a nerve agent, a very sophisticated program built around the development of that chemical weapon. So we looked at two emblematic sarin attacks. One, the 21st August 2013 attacks in Al Ghuta, and the other, the 4th of April 2017 attack at Kanshakun. And working with Syrian Archive, SCM, and consultant investigators, we pulled together what we think is a large body of available information and evidence concerning the perpetration of those attacks. You asked about sort of how one goes about building a case. Should I 
Yeah, but if we can try to sort of maybe summarize steps taken from the very first brainstorming meeting, I guess, through the research and the legal analysis and, and all the way to the, the filing of, of the complaint. Right. So the first step in any of our case building of this kind is to do a comprehensive open source mapping of what we can understand about the attack. In this case, we were looking to understand all of what we call the crime base evidence. So everything from where the attack was carried out, what type of munition was used, the impact sites of the munitions, who were the victims, how many victims, where were they, what hospitals or medical checkpoints were involved. Sarin gas killed many of them silently. When a chemical missile lands, it does not explode. But the smell spreads over a large area and can eliminate an entire neighborhood. The regime was clever and used heavy bombardment at the same time as it launched the missiles, loaded with the gas. This confused people and they didn't understand what was really happening. As part of their investigation into the Al-Huta attack, the United Nations fact-finding mission examined the weather conditions for the 21st of August 2013. They found that the air was moving downwards and that temperatures fell between 2 and 5 a.m., which is when the sarin missiles hit. These were ideal conditions to maximize the impact of the attack. The air pattern and temperature helping the heavy sarin gas to stay close to the ground and make its way into the lower levels of buildings, which is where many people seek shelter during an attack. The doctors were so busy that they couldn't inform us of what was going on. The medical point I arrived at was inside a basement, and I could smell the gas as soon as I entered. It was so strong. I had documented several cases where sarin gas was used, and I was able to distinguish the smell of it easily. I had witnessed the deaths of many people before, but I had never seen as many dead civilians and children as I did that night. I was filming everything, but at one point I turned off my camera because I couldn't shoot anymore. I felt helpless and started to blame myself. Maybe because I was shooting videos and taking pictures, while I should have been helping people and rescuing them. But afterwards, I realized that the pictures and the videos that documented all that happened showed the truth regarding the regime's use of chemical weapons. The additional key part of the project is to understand the perpetrator linkage or who carried it out and what evidence connects the perpetrators to the crime. With the sarin attacks, we approached that in two ways. One is that we carried out a nearly three-year investigation into the SSRC, or the Scientific Studies Research Center. The SSRC is the Syrian government department that is responsible for the chemical weapons program. We 
conducted an investigation that was designed to understand sort of who are the officials that work at the SSRC, the chain of command, the parts of the SSRC that are involved in the research and production of chemical weapons, the locations of the sites used, and how they participate in chemical attacks. And then, so that mapping obviously helps to understand the structure behind the production, acquisition of the needed materials. You know, how do you then go about linking that with the actual attacks? Right. So that's exactly right. So there we took an approach that's primarily based on witness evidence. So we worked with investigators to identify defectors and people sort of linked with the Syrian government. And then in the Al-Ghuta attacks, we looked at the role of, it was a ground-based attack, so it was fired from the ground. And was starting backwards from the specific munition that was used, the rocket that was used, we looked at where that could have come from. And then we tried to trace that to specific perpetrator groups. So could it have been from a Republican Guard base, from a 4th Armored Division of the Syrian army, different Syrian government units that were in proximity to where the attack occurred. I stopped documenting around 5 or 6 o'clock in the morning and went to the medical office to see my friends. I sat there, drank water, and tried to calm down. But Thayer's long night was not over. As night turned to day, the 21st of August 2013 continued with the news that the chemical rockets hadn't just hit Duma in eastern Huta. Hours after Duma was attacked, Western Huta was also struck. Thayer and Razan traveled to the epicenter of the Western Huta attack, a town called Zamalka, to document the aftermath there. Their commitment to documenting the attacks in Al Huta was and is remarkable. That night, we went back to the office to upload testimonies, documentation, photos and videos we took. And only then did I start to realize how the gas had affected me. I had very strong symptoms, vertigo, a headache, a strong urge to vomit, and burns on my face. Two or three days after releasing our report and following the meetings and deliberations of the Security Council and the International Inspection Committee of the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons in al Ghuta, Razan told me that our report went above and beyond. It even reached the United States Department of State. President Barack Obama had warned that the use of chemical weapons in Syria would constitute a red line for the United States, suggesting that it would warrant U.S. military intervention, potentially with boots on the ground. The attack on Al-Ghuta clearly crossed that red line. But the reaction from the big international players was mostly diplomatic. France heavily considered intervening militarily in Syria, but the UK's House of Commons voted against military action. And then, eventually, President Obama also backed down. 
Syria became a signatory to the Chemical Weapons Convention in October 2013, but we know now that it did not actually fully comply with it and did not destroy its entire chemical weapons stockpile. As evidenced by the sarin strike on Khan Shaykhun in April 2017, which killed at least 89 and injured more than 541 people. That ultimate question that was always sort of the baseline of much of this work of how to eventually link it to the main architects. Is that something that you were able to show as well in that case building? This is certainly like one of the hardest parts of building a, quote, leadership case, is showing the connection between a distant commander and the crimes committed by, quote, people on the ground, you know, the people who physically carried out the attack. And I wouldn't say that we have shown to a criminal standard, so we haven't shown beyond reasonable doubt that this person or that person, the president or his brother, were beyond a reasonable doubt carrying out this attack. But we have provided the prosecutors and investigating judge with information and some witness-supported evidence about what we know about how the attacks were carried out. So they certainly have some solid leads to investigate. SCM and its partner organizations, Syrian Archive and the Open Society Justice Initiative, made their first legal filing in Germany in October 2020, after around three years of investigation. The complaint in Germany related to the chemical weapons attacks on Al Huta in 2013 and on Khan Shaykhun in 2017. They then filed criminal complaints in France in March 2021 and in Sweden in April of 2021. Thayer has been a witness in these legal filings, but unfortunately, Razan can't be. On the 9th of December 2013, Razan, her husband and two other colleagues were abducted from the office of the Violations Documentation Center in Duma. The four disappeared activists became known as the Duma Four, and they haven't been seen since. But SCM brought a case in France against a former spokesperson of Jaish al-Islam, an armed group active in Isan Huta, suspected of being involved in the disappearance of the Duma Four, as well as other war crimes. The suspect, known as Islam Alush, is in detention and awaiting trial. But in terms of the chemical weapons attacks, Complaints have been filed and investigations have been opened, but we don't know when, if ever, the perpetrators of these attacks will actually stand trial. For there to be a trial, there would need to be a perpetrator who's available for arrest and prosecution. And senior most people are still in Syria in office, the ones that we've identified. However, trials are just one of many possible strategic outcomes of this type of litigation. Even if the perpetrators are not in the countries where these investigations are taking place, authorities are still able to issue arrest warrants. Ibrahim Olabi is now a barrister at Guernica 37, a human rights law firm in London. When we talk about litigation generally, it's just going to court getting an outcome, right? So there, there are so many strategic tactics that matter more than just, okay, getting a conviction. Because that should not be the metric with international justice. You know, when, when you speak a lot of governments and they're like, oh, but we can't get that person or that person. 
our response, well, this is not litigation, this is strategic litigation. Having an arrest warrant against an individual, yes, they're not in court, but then I'd rather every article that's written about them says who is wanted by X, than not have that sentence in. It has that impact on the narrative. There's precedent for European authorities issuing arrest warrants for high-ranking Syrian regime members, even if they are still in Syria. The most famous of these is perhaps the arrest warrants that both Germany and France have issued for Jamil Hassan, the head of the Air Force Intelligence, which is a very important and very brutal part of the security apparatus in Syria. I think it has this demonstration effect mm. to, to everyone that a rule of law respecting prosecutor, these prosecutors and investigating judge in, in France, take the investigations very seriously. This is not a political project for them in any way. And so they are just looking at what is the file in front of them and does it lead to the conclusion that this person or that person, there's enough evidence against them to seek their arrest for prosecution of the crime. That, I think, would be extraordinarily meaningful to the victims that we represent, to the many thousands of victims of chemical attacks. I'm always hesitant to talk about what sort of deterrent effect it has, but I think it would just show that the law does apply even to these distant crimes, these difficult-to-prove crimes. Perpetrators like to hide behind the state, the state apparatus. And, and that was the whole idea of the Nuremberg trials after World War II, right? Uh, yes, it was the victorious people and so on, but people wanted to differentiate between Germany and those who committed crimes. And I think that's key because we're not against Syria as a state. You know, states exist. It's the people within that state system that are committing those crimes. And so it's important to differentiate them from a country that existed long before them and will hopefully exist long after them. What happened affected me very deeply, to an extent you cannot imagine. I feel that my life's path should be different. I've lost six or seven years of my life, and nothing can compensate for that. I have gone through many traumas, in addition to losing my father, my brother, my home, and everything I had. I cannot say that I have recovered from the trauma. That's impossible. I gathered with a group of survivors from the chemical weapons attacks in Syria. We are working on launching an association called the Chemical Weapons Victims Association. We are trying to preserve the memory of the victims and prevent it from being forgotten. We also hope that this association plays a role in the cases that have been filed against the regime and puts pressure on the organizations of the United Nations in order to change their policies. We, as the victims who have been affected by syringas and other toxic gases used by al-Assad regime, we call upon everyone through your platform to resist defeatism and start taking action. When the regime commits those crimes and gets away with it, they're sending a message to all the parties to the Geneva Conventions, which includes the big actors, that, hey, I can break laws that you've written down and I can get away with it. So it's a power-flexing exercise. There is this sense of, I will not be caught, the sense of impunity, really, that exists. And it existed for a very long time. Perpetrators always thought they can get away with it, right? And I want to prove that saying wrong. 
When I spoke at the Security Council recently, I, I told them, you know, it has been said, Mr. Chair, that you kill one person, you might end up in prison. But if you kill tens of thousands, use chemical weapons and forcibly displace millions, you end up in a peace conference, right? You get invited to the table as a party, as, as someone who can get a solution to all the crimes that you've done. And I personally want to prove that saying wrong. Evidence suggests that the ground offensive that accompanied the sarin gas attack on Al-Ghuta on the 21st of August 2013 was led by the 4th Armored Division of the Syrian Army. Maher al-Assad, President Bashar's brother and quite possibly the second most powerful man in Syria, is the commander of the 4th Division, which is also one of the, if not the, most powerful units of the Syrian regime's armed forces. Some say Maher's influence even extends beyond just the 4th Division, with Bashar letting his brother unofficially basically command the whole army. There's a reason why groups like SCM, Syrian Archive and the Justice Initiative are so focused on the cases which could lead to holding the highest ranking members of the Syrian regime, like Bashar and Maher, accountable. It is because they bear so much of the responsibility for the huge level of criminality that Syrians have suffered from throughout the war. Their responsibility as state representatives should be to protect their civilians, not to kill and terrorize them. The criminality stretches back decades, even before the war, to the very beginnings of the family who are now at the heart of the Syrian regime, the Assads. The Assads are one of the biggest pieces of the puzzle fundamental to understanding why Syria is where it is today. Next time, in episode 5 of The Syria Trials, we look at the very core of the regime and enter the House of Assad. I'm Fritz Streif. Thank you for listening. <laughs>